When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Football Social Daily. Just a couple of days now until Premier League football is back and it will be back with the blockbuster that is Manchester City against Liverpool. Pep versus Klopp, one of the great rivalries of our time. But is there still the same edge to this fixture that there was a few years ago or have City stretched too far in front? This is a game usually full of excitement and energy, but football is becoming more and more boring these days. Is that true? Are spectacular goals at risk of dying out, all because of modern managerial methods? It's an interesting concept and one that we're going to get our teeth into on today's Football Social Daily, an award-winning Premier League podcast. My name's Niall McCorn and with me Joel Tudor and a returning Marley Anderson. How are you doing, lads? Good morning. Yes, not bad. Did you build the baby cot? You avoided the Newcastle chat yesterday. Quite timely. Nah, I, want, I wanted to talk about Newcastle, um, obviously. <laughs> but um, yeah, I couldn't avoid it. So I was disassembling a bed yesterday uh, and then went out for tea. Uh, also also spent four hours in the cinema watching the film. Wait, what was four hours long? Uh, it's, well, it's three and a half hours that um, Scorsese film, the new one, that Flowers of the Killer Moon, it's called, about the uh, Native Americans. Is that with every single Italian-American actor in Hollywood? De Niro, DiCaprio, <laughs> Al Pacino. They're, they're, the, they're the only two. You want to see, um, wow, what's it called? The Irishman. That's got every every Italian going in it. But um, <laughs> no, this one was, it's all, it was all right. It's decent. Good. What did you have for your meal out as well? Uh, Chateaubriand steak. Oh, pushing the boat out. So hang on, right? I went to the ballet in Vienna last week and you're like, oh, that's far too cultured for me. And you're talking about, and the only <laughs> word in that sentence I understood was steak. <laughs> yeah, but it was it. <laughs> but, but it was in Ashton underline, so you went to Vienna and <laughs> yes, I went to okay. Ashton. So. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, all right, then, whilst you're here, before we get stuck into Liverpool against Manchester City, which is, of course, a huge game this weekend as the Premier League returns from the international break, what did you want to say about Newcastle? Because we discussed yesterday the loan rules, Premier League clubs voted 13, seven to keep them effectively the way they are and obviously that's in Newcastle's interests but they're the ones that have had a lot of scrutiny and a lot of focus placed upon them because of these potential loan rule changes so was there anything you did want to say about that uh yeah well the thing that that is getting on my nerves about this whole thing is the the narrative that it's that it's all Newcastle led <laughs> this whole thing like this whole thing is to stop Newcastle signing Ruben Neves and Sadio Mane and Ronaldo and everyone else that's bugging off to Saudi Arabia. Uh, you're seeing headlines like Newcastle-led cartel, um, you know, defeats vote for for equal playing opportunities across the Premier League. And the media is properly getting on my nerves because at no point, and this is the sort of crux of things, at no point were we ever going to sign Ruben Neves. We are not interested in him. We have never been interested in him. He's in Saudi. He's done what he's what he's what he wants to do with his career. He's made that choice. Everybody is putting 
I don't know what the football equivalent of putting words in your mouth is, but sort of putting players in your basket type of thing. <laughs> and just saying like, oh, well, Newcastle could sign Ruben Neves. And and then that's gone from one guy somewhere, either in the, in a, a journalist's head or in somebody on social media has just gone, well, they could sign Ruben Neves because they've got the same owners. And then that's very, very quickly turned to Newcastle are signing to Ruben Neves. And then... Tenali got banned, so they must be signing Nevers, or they must have a plan. You know, they must they must be doing it. And it's like we were never going to do it. So then we've got to this point where they've all gone, oh, let's we'll have a vote. We need to have a vote to stop them doing it. And then their own vote fails, which is just sweet as a nut. And there's no there's nothing there's no um, there's no headlines saying that Nottingham Forest can't sign players from Olympiakos. And there's nothing from Man City saying Man City could sign players from Girona and New York City and flipping whoever else they've got, you know what I mean? But that's because the players Newcastle could potentially pick from include the likes of Mares and Ronaldo and Ruben Neves, just to use an example. What's stopping Nottingham Forest going inside and players who are competing for a league title for Olympiacos for absolute for absolute toffee? They would they would make Nottingham Forest better and it would be it would be unjust to use everybody else's saying. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, I, I, sign... I totally hear you. And actually, I'm probably inclined to agree with you. As me and Joel discussed on yesterday's podcast, I think it wouldn't be that weird if Newcastle signed Ruben Nevish anyway, because I think Newcastle is a step up from Wolves. It's not like this guy's going to come in. and <laughs> It isn't like if you had signed Mares or Ronaldo, for example, that would be different. Yeah, it's not like Luton Town have got Saudi owners and Sadio Mane is going to turn up at Kenilworth Road and, and try and put <laughs> balls on a plate for Carlton Morris. It's just, it's not like that. Um, but yeah, the thing that annoyed me is it's just that the narrative of this, like, we need to stop Newcastle. It's like, you know, injuries have stopped us. How powerful are we? We've got to a Carabao final and lost it. We finished fourth by just playing really well with our current squad. We're still operating within all the rules of this spending. Otherwise, we'd have gone out and absolutely just waste, like, threw money at everyone. And all we've spent is what other clubs spend, like 100 million a season or something like that. Like, we had a 100 million budget this year, and then we sold St. Maximan for 140. And everyone was like, oh, that was to the Saudis. Well, you know, nobody nobody really batted an eyelid when we were selling to the Saudis. But wait, if we buy enough of them or load enough of them, then everyone's up in arms and sees their asses about it. And it's just like, leave it out. <laughs> like we're, we're still spending within our means. And as long as, like, I'll don't get me wrong, I'll be annoyed if if it ever turned out that in two or three weeks' time, the, the window opens, or four or five weeks' time, the window opens, and all of a sudden, you know, Ronaldo turns up in a Newcastle shirt, Emmerich Laporte comes in as well, and... Four other players. I don't want Newcastle to do that because I think that is that's unjust. That's like playing FIFA in real life. I do want us to do it properly as a fan. I don't want us to cut corners and stuff like that. But the fact is, we were never in for Neves. We never will be in for Neves. I don't think. Um, and this this obsession that everyone's got now of they're just going to hoover up all the players. Like we're not Man City in in twenty twelve. Like Robinho's not going to turn up and ask which side of Man which colour shirt he's going to play in it's not like that so 
everyone just get back in your box, please. To be fair, Newcastle is seventh and six points off the top four, so it's not like they're you know, completely sweeping the Premier League away. And That's what I mean. Disposing of all the competition. The salute, like the, the narrative is that we've got to stop them. Like FFP is going to stop us, even if it doesn't, like if it's unfit for purpose, like it probably is. Because there's loopholes through it, as Man City have proved with these 115 charges. You know, there are things in place to stop you. Like, what, what, Gel- what Chelsea are doing is worse than us. Amortising fees and putting the future future financial stake of the club at, at risk. That might all come crush- crashing down one day. We're probably expecting it to because none of us can work out the maths behind signing seven or eight players on eight-year deals for you know, 80 million plus. But everyone's like, well, God, Chelsea might be knackered in the future. And everyone's like, stop Newcastle. They can't finish fourth again. So, well, we can. We'll try. And we'll try within our means that you've put in. So the fact that the the vote failed was hilarious because everyone was like, hang on, if we actually want to proceed and compete, you know, multi-club ownership is probably the way to go. Um, and that's that's what it is. So thirteen was it thirteen to eight? Uh, th- uh, sorry, fourteen to six. Thirteen I, to seven. Thirteen to seven. I There's twenty clubs in the league. I man. can't do that. <laughs> I'm, I'm off this week. I'm not doing anything. <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, Marley talking about football finances and he doesn't know what thirteen adds seven. Hundred percent. Yeah. So you know what I mean. It's just it, the narrative is getting on with it, basically. All right, well, do you know what? We'll leave it there and we'll actually take a short break because we'll talk about Man City versus Liverpool next. Marley's taken up a whole section of the podcast with his defence of Newcastle United. To be fair, he didn't get the chance to do that yesterday, but stick with us as we'll talk about Liverpool against Manchester City next. Does it still have the same edge that it once did a few years ago? We'll talk about it after this on FSD. Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily, an award-winning Premier League podcast. And over the last few years, Manchester City have pretty much dominated the Premier League. Arsenal gave them some stiff competition last year. But in recent times, it's been Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool who have really pushed Pep Guardiola's side right to the very limit. More often than not, Manchester City would come out on top. But it got real close at one stage and Liverpool did in fact win a Premier League title in 2020. As we go into this weekend's round of Premier League fixtures, the first off the back of the international break for November, it is Manchester City against Liverpool at the Etihad. It is first against second, Joel, and there is one point between the sides. But it still doesn't feel like it did a few years ago when these matches in the season would define the Premier League title. Do you agree? And if so, why do you think that is? I mean, you'd have to say now that Liverpool are firm contenders, it seems like they've just gone into the shadows because all the focus has been on Tottenham pretty much emerging from nothing and obviously Arsenal maintaining that form from last season. So Liverpool have almost been seen as this team who are going through a regeneration period and that's why I feel like a lot of people are just not really paying them any mind. But secretly in the background, you're seeing Virgil van Dijk reach pretty, I don't want to say similar levels to that 20... 19 team but I mean he's getting there and it's showing in the amount of goals that they've conceded and how well defensively they've been and then even up front I mean Salah again is performing as he usually does and then suddenly all these new signings in the forward areas are starting to click but I didn't realise that Liverpool under Klopp have never won a game against City at the Etihad in the Premier League which is pretty 
something considering how toe-to-toe they've been throughout the last seven years. But again, I think Liverpool are probably enjoying the fact that there's no pressure on them this season. It seems like no one is giving them even a chance. I've not seen them be mentioned in the media when it comes to them rivaling City or Arsenal this year. It's almost like a free crack of the whip. I don't understand why. And again, it probably is because everyone sees them as this team that are trying to come up again. But like I mentioned in a couple of episodes ago, the main reason why they can do this very quickly is because they've got Jurgen Klopp. And I think he only needs a couple of players to integrate into that side to then become a great side again. So I think this game is absolutely massive. It's probably on the same kind of level as when City play Arsenal at the moment in terms of the pendulum swinger for the title. So I'm putting it out there. Liverpool are title contenders. Can please everyone start the propaganda immediately? (laughs) I'm pretty sure I had them as up there at the start oh, of the here season we go. so here we go i just want to say just want to say um i thought they would be contenders to be honest with you i'm not sure why i thought that but i also feel like there's more to come from liverpool which is interesting i thought it was interesting also what you said about liverpool having not won a game at the etihad i think they have in the premier league era but not since pep guardiola took over i think so since klopp's been there he's never beaten them at their ground yeah so i mean there's obviously all good records need to come to an end, Marley, but do you see that being the case at the weekend? Can Liverpool take it to Manchester City on their own patch and get the result? I, I can't see it. Uh, I think like Liverpool are, are in the race. I always say every year that you're in the race until you're out of the race. Like It doesn't matter what stage of the season you're in. If you're, if you're within touching distance at the top, you know, you, you're in the shout. There's a lot of narrative around Arsenal, which is why I think Liverpool are being... Uh, overlooked I think Arteta's almost turned into Klopp the way he sort of drags the headlines a little bit um, and also the, they've probably overtook them in the league over the last couple of years when uh, since the the year that Liverpool fell off in the title race and Arsenal sort of overtook them last season and then this season as well so you're probably looking at that and saying that's why there's no real talk over Liverpool but the they're incredibly dangerous on the day. Um, they've got the players to hurt anyone. Of course, they have. I think at this point in the season, though, I think the the, the missing a left back, which is going to hurt, um, hurt them slightly. And they're not. It's like they're, they're almost clicking. Like some some weeks are absolutely just killing everyone, um, and they're looking really good, scoring some really good goals, moving it really nicely, and stuff like that. But I think like the, struggling against Luton, I, like. There's performances in there where they've not quite clicked. And I think if you're not at that level against Man City, and it's the first time McAllister, Shabozlai, um have played against Liverpool, uh, get, uh, played at the Etihad against Man City in a Liverpool team, I just think that is a little bit of a step too far. And I think Man City will will still be up for it. Like at home, like they still will know that they can they can lose this game if they don't play well. And um, I think they'll they'll just about see him off. No doubt Jurgen Klopp will complain about the fact this match is a 12.30 kickoff on Saturday when lots of his players have been flying all, of the, all around South America and Africa and all over the place to represent their countries, Joel, during the international break. But what I thought was quite interesting was the amount of goals that Liverpool players have scored during that international window. Salah scored four for Egypt, Nunez got three, Diaz got two, Sabosli two. Harvey Elliott scored three, even Cody Gakpo scored as well for the Netherlands. So these are players who have scored goals internationally. Does that make any difference at all coming into a game like this or not? 
Yeah, you would say potentially because obviously they're going to come into the game with pretty good form. But I mean, it's just going to pick up from where everyone's left off. I don't know what the injury situation is or if any players have picked up any injuries during the break. I only know that Erling Haaland came off against Norway when they got surprisingly dumped out of the Euro qualifications completely. But I think he'll be back for the game regardless. But I mean, when you've got two of the top scorers in the league, Salah and Haaland, Haaland's got 13, Salah's got 10. It's always going to be a game where there's going to be goals every single game that we've watched between Liverpool and City. It always ends up in some kind of 4-2-3-1 kind of thriller where both teams, they seem to complement each other's styles very well. And what I mean by that is they're not almost locking horns. They're almost completely dissimilar, which makes it always a really great game. I mean, every single game that I've watched of them two, whenever it's been both in their peak probably pre that season where they absolutely fell off a couple of years ago it's just been an absolutely lightning game because Liverpool love to play on the transition with what they used to with Sadio Mane and Salah and then obviously City love to control the possession and even now you will probably see it completely the exact same scenario once again so it's going to be a a tight one but like Marley's just said I think I think this game will almost define how serious Liverpool are because when you look at the games that they've actually played against the big side they got beaten by Spurs that was their only defeat and obviously that was that VAR decision so then you could even say well should they be undefeated considering that was the actual reason for it then they had that comeback against Newcastle where they had the man sent off and then scored two goals in the last 10 minutes and then they had the one or draw against Chelsea so against the bigger size they actually are I mean, not to say as well with Luton, I mean, <laughs> against the bigger sides, they're starting to have a bit of trouble, but this is the real test now, and let's see how they fare, because I think any team going to the Etihad, it's, it's a difficult, difficult game. And from a Man City perspective, Mali, they lost two games in a row, didn't they? They lost to Wolves and to Arsenal, and then obviously this 4-4 before the international break with Chelsea. So are there any worries about Manchester City's inconsistency in the last couple of weeks or not? I, I wouldn't think so. Um, I think I probably think that because it's it's still pre-Christmas and we're so used to seeing City kick on after Christmas that if they're even you know lurking around that top spot in you know November and October you know it looks inevitable and I think like the the results of you know the 4-4 with Chelsea it's just a mint game just a great game little bit of an off day defensively, but still scored four goals. Um, and that's probably what you got to focus on. You know, the, the the goals they conceded, it was a mistake from Gvardiol, which is, you know, happens to happens to everyone. One was a penalty. Um you you know, there's there's they're not sort of being opened up and, and looking awful defensively and then on all over the place and things like that. So I don't think there's um there's too much to to worry about, really. If you man see, um, it's just one of those where you, you know, you can you can think Man City are going to be, you might think that you know they're not quite at the level, but I think a game against Liverpool at home will bring it out of them. They know they know what the table looks like. Um, they know that Liverpool, in theory, have a side capable of winning the Premier League. And at this point in time, we don't know. Like, we all expect Man City to win. But Liverpool is, is yeah, well up there. And they'll be trying to prove to themselves, if they can beat Man City away, you know, does, I think that puts enough wind in your sails to carry yourself through the rest of the season and fly through and, 
beat everyone and properly be in the title race when April and May turns around, comes around. Um, but they've got to do that. And I think psychologically that's that's massive. Um, and Man City will know that, that they can they can prove if they win two or three nil and pretty comfortably, you know, they can prove that they are still top dogs and they're the ones to beat and maybe we should be more worried about Arsenal type of thing. Like I said earlier, it's top against second and there's a point between them. And these two have had some great games over recent years. I don't find myself that excited or that compelled to watch it. Is that strange? Or do you boys feel the same? It's not like in old seasons where it was like, oh my God, I've got to watch Liverpool against Man City tonight. This is just going to be class. I just, I feel myself a little bit, and I know I'm a neutral and I'm not, I don't have a horse in the race or, you know, so to speak. But I don't, I don't feel that excited. I mean, it's it's obviously going to be a good game, you'd hope, between two of the best teams in the country, but I just don't feel that bothered or excited by it. Is that because it's so early in the season or why is that, Joel? I think that's because you're getting old now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's, it's like we've said. at the top of the league, isn't it? Well, we might not be if the FA take points off of us for Jermaine Defoe <laughs> from 2008. But yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Wheeler Dealer Harry still involved in your club. <laughs> yeah, bloody um, hell. I think it's like we've said, it's the narrative that's been around Liverpool this season. Because if we remember, like you've just said, those pretty amazing games against City and Liverpool during the last seven years. It was only because they were going toe-to-toe against each other every single year, getting 90-plus points, with the gap being literally one or two points in it every year. Then Liverpool had that blip uh, last season and the season before that as well. And they've almost started to fade. And like we've mentioned, Arsenal have almost taken that mantle of being the game to watch against Man City because they're the two kind of front runners. That's why it almost feels like Liverpool are going into this game as severe contenders rather than potential championship winning games where they could potentially take the crown off Liverpool. I think if they do win this game and they get a massive result against against them, then the return fixture at Anfield will feel like the kind of classics, let's say, that they've actually brought in the last few years. But I think for now, it does feel like severe underdogs against... You know, it's, the t- it's like when... When we used to watch, for example, Real Madrid completely blitz the La Liga and every single team that played and felt like they were just untouchable. It feels like this. Let's not forget City, the treble winners. They've won everything last season. That's why it almost feels like every team that play them are just complete contenders that are trying to gain a little mark on the, get a little chink on their armour. So I think it's going to take a team to completely wipe them off and make a statement and that could be it for Liverpool but I just really don't see it well I'll probably tune in why not Liverpool against Manchester City (laughs) all of that just to say you're tuning (laughs) maybe it's half 12 on a Saturday might still be in bed by then depending on how busy Friday night is you never know Um, that's it for this part of Football Social Daily next we're going to tackle this interesting question which has cropped up in one of the newspapers this morning is Premier League football getting boring are we seeing less spectacular goals and is it because of the likes of Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola that that's the case? Buckle up, we'll talk about it next. I'm Niall, Marley and Joel are with me and this is Football Social Daily. Welcome back to the podcast. If you hit subscribe or follow on your favourite platform, wherever you listen to podcasts, that way when a new show is released, you'll get a notification so you won't miss it. Joel sent me an article this morning from the Daily Telegraph, one of the UK newspapers, saying we should talk about it on the podcast. 
And effectively, it was a question. Is football becoming more boring? And when we say that, I think what the person means, the journalist in question means is, are we seeing less spectacular goals? Less screamers? Is there less variety in the goal of the month award? We all long for a December 2006 goal of the month shortlist as Joel's probably mentioned on this podcast at least 10 times. <laughs> <laughs> Not as much as you mentioned Portsmouth. <laughs> well, every time you mention it, the goal of the month is Matty Taylor against Everton or Sunderland. I can't remember which because he scored two very similar goals. But Joel, I wonder why this kind of piqued your interest when you saw that, because is it something you agree with? And I feel because I feel like you've actually mentioned something similar on the podcast in the in the past. Yeah, it is. And I noticed it because every single time I'd watch a game or watch these compilations at the end of the month, none of the goals would make me stand up and go, wow, that's like the Hugo Rodriguez goal from near the halfway line. Or that's like the David Bentley goal where Spurs drew with Arsenal in that 4-4 thriller. Sure, we're getting, you know, games like the City one in Chelsea where it's a 4-4 and it's pretty energetic and there's a lot of drama involved but in terms of the actual audaciousness let's say of the goals I'm not seeing a lot of risk taking anymore and in the article the statistics actually back it up where they actually mentions that risk taking as a whole is pretty much on the downfall so it's clear to me that or the statistics prove it that there's more teams that are focusing on more ball retention more than risk taking which kind of makes sense because I know me and Marley spoke about the fact that Whenever a goalkeeper has a a kick from his hands, I genuinely can't remember the last time I saw him hit it long. And that seemed to be the absolute common trend pre, let's say, Pep Guardiola era, you would say. And then following that, teams are like are literally looking at the game and thinking it's too risky to lose the ball in these situations. I remember when Jack Grealish first went to Guardiola's side, he was so used to at Villa having a license to literally risk take whether it's taking on a man in the middle, whether it's shooting from distance. And then I remember him saying in an interview, he almost became petrified of losing the ball because Guardiola didn't want him risk-taking. Carl Walker said the exact same thing, where he didn't want him making parallel passes across the pitch because it's too risk-taking. So he'd rather do diagonal, short passes, complete ball retention. And I think if you're successful in that, clearly competition's going to try and copy you. We've saw it, uh, like the article mentions, Gary O'Neill on Monday Night Football talking about very tactical double pivots in the midfield and keeping the ball. It seems like coaches, and this is one great aspect of it, coaches are becoming way more tactically astute compared to maybe, let's say, and I don't want to put any shade on these managers because they brought something to us all. But you know, the likes of Paul Jewell, Sam Allardyce, they seem like a very different era of of, manage, of management, really, where they knew what it took to get a result, whereas now managers are almost encouraged to find a good way to play. Fans are almost demanding a good way to play now, rather than having Ivan Campo chest it down to uh, JJ Okocha and then they start playing nice football again. So I don't know about you guys, but yeah, I have noticed that the audaciousness and the creativity in football has slowly declined I think and maybe that's because we are spoiled with the amount of goals that we've seen you know for instance you mentioned Man City Chelsea eight goals in the game hard to remember all of them but I feel like we do see a lot of cutbacks and tap into the back of the net and for some people Joel that is beautiful football for some people that does count as a beautiful goal and I dare say that Pep Guardiola sees that as the perfect goal whereas maybe we just come from an era where we are used to seeing Frank Lampard smash the ball in from 25 yards and Steven Gerrard chest it down and do the same thing. And I guess, Marley, you don't see that often players smash the ball in from 30 yards anymore because of the reasons Joel says. 
I guess it's too much of a risk to concede possession back to the other team. I get, I, I get that, um, and I get everything Joel's just said, and it, it, it's absolutely right. Um, number one, when did Joel start reading the Telegraph? <laughs> I don't because it's behind a paywall, but I just thought it piqued my interest on this fine uh, Thursday morning. <laughs> you read the first four lines of God. I'm not paying for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I just we'll made my own narrative around it. it. <laughs> um, that, that's, do you know what? I, I don't get this. Um, like, it's it's an article that can only be written and published at the end of an international break. It's journalists looking for something to to um to talk about. Right, it's what you would call an opinion piece. I would say in the newspaper, yeah, yeah. and that's fine. But I think I know why. I think I know the origin of why he's wrote this piece. And there was a, a thing, uh, a video trended on Twitter uh, about a week ago now, and it was, it was a co- it was a compilation of absolute screamer goals from that era that we just talked about, two thousand six, two thousand to two thousand and ten. I remember it opened up with a goal I've, I've I'd completely wiped from from my memory from for Wigan Athletic, for a midfielder called Denny Lanzat who, uh, again, I'd completely forgot about, but he hit one. I think it was against Arsenal, and he hit one, and the ball was moving at about 85 mile an hour, and it hit the top corner, and it was an absolute uh, banger, this goal. And it was just a compilation of goals like that, and the the nostalgic effect made it go viral, because everyone was like, look how good football used to be. Lads used to just get it. But when was the last time the fullback... When was the last time that happened? When was the last time a Noe Pamero lasered it in against Newcastle it's still it's been ages it still happens though it still happens it's less is way way less long range goals and headed goals as Joel mentioned before they're still part of the game well in this article actually there are statistics to back up the argument it says here in the past 20 years there's been a steady reduction from around 13 shots per game from outside the box to closer to nine at the moment Headed goals are also in decline. Nearly one in five Premier League goals in 2004-05 were headers. Now it's more like one in 10. I guess there is a bit of data there. You're seeing less headers scored. You're seeing less people taking chances on shooting from outside the penalty area. I guess that's the now, but in 10 years, that might change. It is because each style of football is the antidote to, to the other. Like, you know, if you're getting pressed, like Man City and like... Jurgen Klopp's famous Gagan press system. If you're getting pressed, what is the what is the way to beat it? Hoof it long, beat the press, put it over the top of the press, and have really fast lads sprint onto it, and then you make them three or four on two at the other end. Like it goes in in peaks and troughs, and it goes round in circles, and it's it's just the way football is. Like somebody will come along, like like Niall said, in ten fifteen years time, and it'll be six or five, and he'll score eight eight headers in in eight consecutive weeks <laughs> and the new the new breed of journalists and online tiktok tossers will be like oh this is a new way of playing football maybe it's for for really tall lads why is oh. bas- why is basketball Allardyce will have a job then <laughs> yeah they'll be like oh why is basketball full of like you know the smallest guy in a basketball team is like six foot eight they're all huge like behemoths of players <laughs> why isn't football like this and then all of a sudden you know the quality of the Premier League might dip again because everyone's everyone's getting a flipping beanball and sticking him up front, and it's just like it's weird. It's 
I, I get the the point of the article, but sort of a, like headlining is is football getting boring? Like, no, it's not because the team. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we know the headline's probably there for clickbait. It's behind a paywall, after all, as you mentioned. But one of the other sort of points, I guess, that was being made in this article was our creative players being suffocated a little bit because of the way that they are told to play within the framework of a system that a manager says when this happens you need to trigger your press over there when this person has the ball you need to be in this position rather than the old school we mentioned Harry Redknapp jokingly we mentioned Sam Allardyce rather than give the ball to Jack Grealish and go and do your thing Jack you know you've got no rules today take on your man have a shot just try and tear them to shreds I think that's one of the points that the article is trying to make, isn't it, Joel? That these creative players maybe aren't allowed or given the freedom or license to be as creative because they have to play in a certain way. And they can't just be given the ball like a Paul Gascoigne, who probably didn't really have any understanding of tactics, just went, give me the ball, take on four players and score. It is. And that's why I really appreciate players like Vinny Jr., for example, because you can probably count on one hand the amount of wingers that now take on their fullback or add a little bit of flair to the game. I mean, these kind of players are a real rare breed. The types of Ronaldinho's that you used to get back in the 2000s who actually brought a little bit of excitement to their game. I think that now the creative players are completely stifled. You look at the number 10 role, it's it's extinct. That was one of my favorite positions in football because they almost dictated the whole game, but higher up in the pitch. The likes of Meza Ozil, who I absolutely loved when he was at Real Madrid because he just pulled the strings on everything and added a bit of flair to the game. Now it's it seems very, very structured. And although you always get in periods of football, these kind of innovators, you always look at, for example, the Van Gaal side, Ajax, where they played this mad three-back formation with all these different sweepers, or you look at the Milan side with a sweeper and Baresi and Maldini, you always get influences in games because if it works, everyone will start to copy you. We looked at it with Guardiola and I think it was inevitable during that period of time where he won those Champions Leagues and then Spain ended up going back-to-back Euros and won a World Cup. You'd be a fool to not try and replicate that or try and add aspects of your game from that actual model that is created. And when we're talking about the early 2000s, let's say, you know, when we talk about Wigan, those types of teams, Derby, they were they were really poor teams to watch. Like, that, that's the bottom line. Whereas the teams that are coming up now, they actually play pretty good football. If you put it on a graph and you had the bar of how well the teams play on the eye, in the early 2000s, the teams that got promoted, you would say is very, very low. If you look at the teams that get promoted now, you'll probably say the bar's been raised pretty high where they could have the capability to beat any team in the league by playing decent football. And that's... Yeah, but then you look at Burnley this season and they're getting absolutely killed by trying to play football. Yeah, but so that's like a double-edged sword, isn't it? They feel like they have to play a certain way because their fans are now seeing all these other teams that have been successful in it. So then these managers are also being influenced by it and thinking... I need to kind of be a bit of a morph of Pep Guardiola because it clearly works. But it only works because Guardiola pays stupid amounts of money to have the right specialists who do the right things in the right positions. You can't get Vincent Company getting uh, Sander Berg and being his Rodri because no disrespect, but he's not that level. And that's where they, they pay the price. And that's why, you know, when you had Sean Dyche at Burnley, everyone always criticised him for the way they played and you know what fair enough it wasn't easy on the eye but 
he stayed in the Premier League for nearly a decade. There was a reason for that because he was effective and he actually went down his lane and thought, you know what, my strengths are playing with two big strikers. We're going to be really ugly and we're going to get victories. And he kept them in the Premier League for a good amount of time. That's why I really respect Diego Simeone, for example. Even though everyone said, oh, it's the dark arts of football, it's the bottom tier. You had Guardiola, Guardiola always calling out and Jurgen Klopp calling out how teams that time waste and play it long and that kind of thing are just a bit of a stain on football, to paraphrase. But... Diego Simeone has crafted his own lane, his way of playing football, and it's been pretty successful for them. And that's why I actually respect it for that. Maybe teams need to try and go down their own lane a little bit more, like Marley said, instead of trying to copy these absolute powerhouses and they are getting pummeled because they can't do it effectively because they don't have the quality of players to actually do it. It's absolutely horrible to watch, though, isn't it? Atletico. Watching Atletico in a knockout stage of a Champions League where they're literally just kicking players because they're not as good as them is one of the most frustrating things you'll ever watch. But that's the game, though. That's the beauty of it. But it is the game. There's the saying, isn't there? You know, there's more than one way to skin a cat type of thing. There's more than one way to win a football match. You know, you can do that. Sean Dyche kept Burnley in the Premier League playing the worst, some of the worst football you'll ever see for eight years. You got them seventh in the league one year. Pinter Companies made, made Burnley walk the championship with 100-odd points and then come in to the Premier League and it just doesn't work. So there's, there's you know, different styles to, to everything, really. Yeah, but no, it, you know what, though? Football is purely a flavour of the month type game, isn't it? Because do you remember when Van Gaal played that three at the back in the World Cup with the Netherlands and they went really far? They absolutely smashed that Spain side when Ayn Robin was in a one-on-one foot race with Sergio Ramos and everyone was thinking, my God, this system is absolutely incredible where they had Kevin Strootman and uh, Robin and Van Persie and Schneider and it, it kind of worked like clockwork. And then Antonio Conte came and did the exact same thing in the league, made Victor Moses and Marcus Alonso look like Maldini and Cafu, for example. And everyone thought, right, let's go and replicate the three at the back because clearly it works. No, the only reason it works is because he has very, very specific plays for a very specific task. You saw it into Milan. Matteo Damian has suddenly become one of the best fullbacks in the league because he's he's so specialised in that role now under when uh, Antonio Conte was there. And then teams tried it. Man United tried it with Van Gaal at United and it just didn't work because we just didn't have the players to do it. We had Paddy McNair at right back, for God's sake, trying to be Cafu. That was one of the worst. When people say about Van Gaal at Man United, I don't, I don't think of the Europa League or anything like that. I think of the worst football sorry the FA Cup winning it's the worst football I've ever seen from a, from a, a genuinely good side which they were at the time and the him and Conte had 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 the same problem they thought it they thought they had it sussed with the back three like when Holland played it really well in the in the World Cup Van Gaal was like I think Van Gaal has played every game since with a back three because he just thinks he did it at Ajax though as well you know that 90s side mm, yeah but I mean that was 25 years ago you know what I mean so as as we said before it comes around in circles it's bringing up the old thing like teams in in the 60s and the 80s they used to have sweepers or liberos they were called like Matthias Sammer was a good one in um, when Dortmund won the um, Champions League in 95, 96 uh, 97 I think it was Sammer was like a centre back um, like a libero who just would just run and just either sweep things up at the back or just go forward. He was like almost a false centre-back. He just had a sort of free role of go around and find a danger and stop it. And it was like, okay, that's brave and new. 
and nobody could get used to it for a while. It took them a long way in, in German football and in European football, and then it died out because people clicked on and worked it out and thought, oh, actually, he's a liability if we can get at him in certain places. Not not as a player and ability-wise, because he was amazing, but, you know, if he's not in a back four, then we can get at him down the sides and there's only one of him. And there could be three of us in that situation, so that died out. And then, you know, 20 years later, Conte wins the Premier League after getting battered by Arsenal 4-0 with a back four, win, walks the back four with a back three. Sorry, walks the Premier League with a back three. <laughs> And it's just, you know, it, it goes around. And then I don't think there's a team in the football pyramid, never mind the Premier League, who hasn't played with a back three at some point since then. You know, it's crazy. You know, your Van Gaal point, my friend has a season ticket in the end that's opposite the Stretford end. And typically when teams kick off at Old Trafford, United always attack the Stretford end in the second half. So the, the first half, they were always attacking my friend's end. And Van Gaal created a record where United didn't score for 14 games in a row in the first half at Old Trafford. So my friend never saw a goal at his end for, what, 14 games? Around three months, four months of the season. So he's literally watching every single goal from the Stratford end, which was <laughs> miles away, it feels like, from his seat. And nobody, like everyone at his end, I remember going to a game with him and he said, I don't know why you've come because you're not going to see a goal at our end today. Literally, it was the most boring, yeah, awful, absolutely awful. <laughs> not doing much for your argument that football's more boring now then, are you, really? Well, there's always <laughs> exceptions. There's always exceptions. <laughs> right, that's it for Football Social Daily. Enough tactical chat. We'll be back on Monday with the classic Get In The Sea, which is our Monday feature where we have a bit of a moan about something over the course of the Premier League weekend. I wonder what will wind us up. Some good games to look at. And don't forget, if you hit subscribe, that way you'll be notified when that episode is ready. But whatever you're up to, have a great weekend. That's it from us. We'll see you on Monday. Football Social Daily is a voice work sport production for the Sports Social Podcast Network.